Welcome to the Grace Vineyard Podcast, where we are building growing communities of worshipers who are becoming like Christ, empowered to do His work. We hope you enjoy this message. Okay, question for you. Have you ever heard someone, probably a Christian, say, well, Christianity is not a religion? Have you heard that? You haven't. Often followed up with, Christianity is not a religion, Christianity is a relationship. You've, you've heard that? You're not sure? Okay. You've got to talk to me, then I know I'm <laughs> in the same room with people. So, I... Um, I was talking with a younger person this week who told me that really is, doesn't make much sense to people outside of the church, by the way, because they go, yes, it's a religion. So, and I said, thank you for that. So maybe more explanation, if you're not familiar with that thinking, or maybe you're, you're not, maybe you're outside of Christianity and you're like, well, of course Christianity is a religion. What do you mean? So I looked up uh, in the dictionary what, what a religion is, and here's the definition. It's a noun, the belief in and reverence for a supernatural power, powers regarded as creating and governing the universe, or a particular variety of such belief, especially when organized into a system of doctrine and practice, or a set of beliefs and values and practices based on the teaching of a spiritual leader. And I thought, okay, well, you know what I noticed? For a definition of religion, uh, God doesn't even have to be real or exist. Did you, did you notice that? Maybe you didn't. The, every definition I gave you was all about people having kind of some set of beliefs that they live according to. But it didn't, it didn't require that there actually be a God even to be a religion. And especially, there was no sense in any definition of religion that people in the religion would actually have a personal, experiential encounter with this being they call God. And that's, that's a, a big component of what we think it means to be a follower of Jesus or a Christian, that it's much more than a series of beliefs that could be kind of written down on a piece of paper and you could say, yeah, I believe that. It's actually super important that the one we believe in not only is real, <laughs> There is a personal being that we call God, but that we have real, maybe tangible, experiential encounters with the living God. Does that already make sense? Did possibly any of you this morning have some kind of a sense of a a being, a person that you were coming in contact with today? Lots Lots of heads nodding. That happens commonly when we gather and worship. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And so, just a second. This is where I need two hands. Now I'm going to spill the water all over my paper. There, I did it. Yay. Sorry, my mouth got dry. And I know that's probably rude to drink water in front of you because now some of you are thirsty, right? Sorry. It's really good. My mouth was getting dry and then, you know, it would be hard to listen to me. So a a few years back, um, and I can't even remember how many, it might be like seven or eight, a group of us, uh, mostly people that were involved in some kind of leadership, 
in this church, maybe there was like 40 of us, we all had a meeting, several meetings on the back here, and we begin to ask ourselves, what are the things that we believe that God has, that would describe who God has made us to be? And just not, not let's look for some kind of truth, but let's actually talk about our experience. What do we think sort of identifies our experience with God so we can put some words down that would better equip us to communicate who we are to people who might ask, well, what are you guys all about? And you've probably seen that phrase, real God, real people restoring lives. Have you ever bumped into that somewhere on literature, on a sign outside? So the idea is that real God means we have legitimate encounters with a living God. Real people refers to authenticity, like we believe that we are or we're becoming a people who are authentic with each other, who drop facades, who tell it like it is to each other, and that we will grow best in relationship with God when we're together, being honest with each other. And then that third phrase, so real God, real people, restoring lives is a phrase to describe what we thought happens often and should happen more and more through us in that we partner together with God to bring his healing power to bring healing to broken lives. And broken lives of every sort. I mean, lives that are broken in addiction, broke, lives that are broken in relational messes, lives that are broken in physical um, sickness and disease that needs healing. All those things we feel that we're called to do. So those three phrases actually are packed with meaning out of the Bible. And I wanted to take a little time today in the next couple of weeks walking, talking through them for the purpose of us getting back to some of the foundations of what we think we're called to be. And it's not just, it's not like us, like we're special or unique. This is, I think, and what we think would be descriptive of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So you with me? You ready to go? So this, this real God concept that we would have um, real let me, let me spell it out how we said it, actually. Here's the full phrase, and he'll probably put it on the screen. Real God. God is alive! Exclamation point. When we meet, he shows up, and we experience him through his word, through his spirit, and through each other. And then we quoted the words of Jesus. Because, I mean, there's a good question. What do you mean God shows up? Isn't God everywhere present? That's a, that's a truth, right? God is everywhere present. He fills the earth. Omnipresence is the attribute description, the word. God is omnipresent. So what, what would you mean God shows up? What we mean is, according to the words of Jesus, whenever two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in a particular way. There I am present in their midst. And there's a, there's a concept throughout the Bible um, that sometimes would be called the manifestation of his presence. Or another word that is even larger that describes this experience is called the glory of God. And I want to walk us through some of the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament and see how biblically there is this experience of the manifest presence of God that really changes things. It's really important. And, and sometimes when you read what's available in the Bible, 
it builds your faith to expect what God has already said he will do. And then as we've been learning, when we read from the Bible that God will do certain things and that he wants to do certain things, we discover that we are called to pray that those things that we already know he wants to do will be done because he has chosen to partner with his people often through the means of prayer to get his will accomplished. That was a lot of words in that sentence, huh? Did you follow it though? Okay. Uh, sometimes this guy talks a lot. So, well, he's preaching. Of course, he talks a lot. So, um, there's a there's a word that is not in the Bible, but you have probably heard it if you've been around Christians or Christian music sometimes, and, or if you were around here. According to my notes, I talked about this um, in January of 2020, so about two and a half years ago. So, if this sounds familiar, some of the things I'm going to say are just a repeat of something I said two and a half years ago. Um, but it's not because I didn't have anything to say, so I thought I'd just recycle an old sermon. <laughs> I thought it would be good to remind you and remind us. So there's a word that the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, coined that's not in the Bible, but it's the word Shekinah. Have you heard the word Shekinah before? And sometimes you hear it as a phrase, Shekinah glory. And it, it's a theological term that shows up in the writings of the rabbis, and it describes the manifest presence and glory of God. Essentially, it means, an interesting phrase, the dwelling place of him who dwells. So it comes from a Hebrew word that would be in the Bible, shakan, that is translated in English for us if, it, if it's in the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, translated for us the word to dwell. And if we were people who spoke Hebrew, we would recognize that sounds familiar because the word mishkan is built from the word shakan, and mishkan is the word that is translated tabernacle. Do you remember the word tabernacle? That's kind of a strange word, but it's kind of it, what it was what actually was a portable temple. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt and were being created into a nation, a nation of God. And they were journeying through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. God gave Moses, their leader, a very specific plan. And he described to him how to, how to build a place where they could meet with God. It was called the tabernacle. And God himself laid out the description very specifically. God's presence, his Shekinah, dwelt in the tabernacle. So it was, it was a tent they could tear down and set up. A lot of, it's pretty big, took a lot of work, but they could tear down and set up. Oh, I think this is the year that Calvary Chapel Oceanside puts up the, the tabernacle experience. Do you know, is it up right now or is it gone? It, oh, sorry, I'm late. <laughs> um, they, um, over at Calvary Oceanside, um, some people have put together um, a copy of the tabernacle based on the, the layout that Moses describes, and they put it in their parking lot full size, and you can go and have the tabernacle experience. They do it, I think, every couple years for several weeks. If you get a chance, it's phenomenal to walk through. You're like, ooh, I'm there. Where's Moses? This is cool. So listen to this description of the presence, the Shekinah of God, the glory of God, at the time when after giving the instructions to build the tabernacle, it was finally built. So it's gorgeous. It's built with beautiful fabrics. There's gold embroidery on some stuff. There's 
workmanship. And so it took a while, but the people together with Moses under his leadership built this thing. They built the Ark of the Covenant, that box where they put the Ten Commandments and the manna and Aaron's rod. But they built all this stuff. They finally put it together. It was going to be time to set it up for the first time. They set up the tabernacle. And this, in Exodus, is the description. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up a curtain at the entrance to the courtyard, and so Moses finished his work. So I don't have time to describe the whole thing, but there's, a, there's an inner tent where just the priest could go. Inside, behind a curtain, was the Ark of the Covenant with golden cherubim, wings spread from end to end. Um, outside of that curtain was a, another place they went where there was a candlestick, everything having meaning. Outside of that was the place where there was an altar, where um, the animals would be sacrificed for the worship. So it's all set up, and here's what happened. Verse 34 of Exodus 40. He sets it up. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, I don't know how your imagination works, but I kind of picture golden, lighted, clouded something, like a presence so thick that you could feel and see, maybe smell, I don't know, but you experience God is here. And I've had one time in my life where God showed up powerfully, presencefully in a room where I was, and it was somewhat frightening and made me just want to be silent. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. It happened one time in my life. This, it, this happened and stayed. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during their travels. Can you picture that? So here this nomadic people have become a nation under God. They're on their way traveling to the promised land. They're in a wilderness on their way there. Wherever they camp out, they set up this place of meeting with God and worshiping. And they're supposed to stay there until the cloud moves and they can all see God is in the midst of us. There's a cloud over this place where he meets us. And at night, it's lit with fire. Isn't that crazy? Well, later on, after Israel made it into the promised land, it was set up as a nation with tribes in their various places. David had become the, the second king, but the, the first real strong king that established the presence of God and a place where God would cause his name to dwell. David had wanted to build a temple, not a tent, but a physical structure, a building, and God said, you know what, it's not for you to build it. I'm going to have one of your sons build it. So Solomon, his son, comes. You can read all of this in um, 1 Samuel and in the, the books of the Chronicles. And I'm going to read to you from 2 Chronicles, actually. Samuel, again, has specific instructions from God how to lay out everything in this place. Because everything is, is symbolic. It all is meaning. If, if we did a study, we'd end up reading in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews says actually that temple was just a model of the real temple that's in the heavenly places that Jesus entered as the high priest. And there's all this incredible story about what Jesus did when he was on the cross and when he died and when he rose again and how he offered his blood that we were singing about. 
powerful stuff, but that would take me like all day to tell you, so I'll just mention, if you're interested, read Hebrews. Um, so Solomon builds this temple. It's very much like the tabernacle, but it's a physical structure. It's a building. It's um, ornate. They, he had so much gold, he literally plated the walls of the temple in gold, if you can imagine. It was just like a, a wonder of the world. He builds this place, and he completes it, and you can read about this in one place would be the fifth chapter of Second Chronicles. There's a, quite a fanfare. There's people worshiping. They're going to dedicate the temple, but just at the completion, meaning they've taken now the Ark of the Covenant, brought it into the most holy place, set up the curtain. Only the priests are there. They've got all the pieces of the furniture and everything laid out, and here's what happens. This is describing Shekinah. And all the Levites, Levite doesn't mean they were wearing Levi Strauss jeans. What it means is they were, that was almost a joke, huh? They're, <laughs> but um, um, Levi is the name of one of the sons of Jacob, Israel, and he was the leader of one of the tribes, and his offspring were given the task of being the priests who would serve in God's temple. And a lot of them were musicians. Their particular service was to be the worship band. So we kind of copy that a little bit. We have people leading worship from a band now. All the Levites who were musicians, here's some names, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and relatives, stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing playing cymbals and harps and lyres. They were accompanied by, ready for this, 120 priests sounding trumpets. If you ever think church music is loud, try to get around 120 trumpet players, okay? 120. That's more people that are in this room right now, all blowing trumpets. So there's trumpets, there's choirs, there's cymbals, there's harps. The trumpeters and the singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. They raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. And I can't wait till we get to heaven and they have a video library where we can watch how this was done with surround sound. I mean, don't you want to see it? I'm sure we'll be able to. So they're singing, he is good, his love endures forever. They're worshiping, and I don't think they expected this, but here's what happened. Then the temple was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. One translation says they could not stand. I don't know if they were falling down or what, but the presence of God was literally thick in this place. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. And from that moment on, the temple was marked by the visible manifestation of God's presence. It set them apart from every other nation. No other nation had a temple for their God where their God dwelt, and you could bump into him and feel him, and his cloud filled it. So they always loved the fact that we are the people of Yahweh, and he has made a place where we can meet with him, where our priests can go on the Day of Atonement, where his presence is visible. And it remained like that, until that story we read about some time ago where 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came in with his armies and sacked Jerusalem and tore the temple apart, tore it down. With fire melted it, so all the gold on the walls was melted down. He took everything, all of these gold utensils and all the furniture, took it, and, and, and many of the people were exiled to Babylon. And it was because God was judging a sinful people. Remember reading that? The people that had turned their back on God, and after years and years and years of warning, he said, if you do not stop the wickedness you're doing, I will bring in someone to bring judgment on you. It happened. Seventy years later, according to the promise of God, many of you know this phrase, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for a future. You know, remember that? That was referring to these people going into exile saying, I haven't forgotten you. Judgment's coming, but I'm going to bring you back. And in fact, 70 years later, they came back. They rebuilt the temple. But when they did, they wept because the glory never came back. The presence, the Shekinah wasn't there. And they would write about this, the, rabbi, the rabbis and the scholars. And there was a hope that one day the presence would return. The prophet said, yes, especially I love reading it in Haggai, the day is coming when the presence will return. But it happened differently than they expected. Are you still tracking with me with this story? Okay, now we're in the time of Jesus. We're in the Gospel of John, and John does something that's surprising. He uses the language of the tabernacle to describe Jesus, and he uses the language of glory. So here it is. Um, let me get my notes caught up with my mouth. <laughs> John Chapter 1, verse 14. You could read the whole first chapter, but here's a synopsis. The Word, describing Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And John uses strange language. It really, if you just translated it exactly across the, the languages, it would say Jesus tabernacled. He dwelt. He shakan. He mishkan. <laughs> he became a new temple. And remember when he, was, he told the Pharisees, if you tear down this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And then John said he was referring to his body. So the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only. The one and only refers to the one true God, Yahweh himself. We've seen the glory of God tabernacled amongst us in the form of Jesus who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's a return, but a different return of the Shekinah, of the glory, the manifest presence of God that was with Moses at the tabernacle, was with Solomon, the people of Israel, at the dedication of his temple, and now has returned in the form of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the promised one. Hebrews says this about him, the Son, Jesus, radiates God's own glory. There's that picture again of glory radiating and expresses the very character of God. I, I don't know exactly what it was like and how veiled he was, but remember one time when they came to arrest him in the garden, and they, he said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus, and he said, I am he, and they all fell down. I think for just a moment he just pulled back the curtain just an inch. <laughs> A centimeter, and the glory of God just knocked them on their feet, and they couldn't stand to do what they were doing. Well, that temple was also destroyed because of sin. Jesus took that temple to the cross. And then 
he expanded that temple in a way that was yet again not foreseen or expected. And this brings the story of the glory of God, the manifest presence, the God is real and he shows up to us today. Because after Jesus was resurrected, he fulfilled another promise. He said, you guys, 40 days later, go and wait. Ten days after that, they were waiting, and it was 50 days, the day of Pentecost. The day that we're celebrating today, by the way, it is actually the day of Pentecost on the calendar. So this is a good time to have this talk. I didn't even realize that until this very second. (laughs) What a coincidence. Maybe not. On that day, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people. And in fact, in a similar fashion, there was fire above the heads of those that were worshiping God. You remember that? There was fire above their heads, and they began to speak in other tongues, and they began to prophesy, and they spoke of the glorious wonders of God, and the Shekinah was present. And then it became the thing, the reality, that every person who puts their faith in Jesus is born again, born of the Spirit, and the very Spirit of God dwells in them, just like the Spirit of God was dwelling in the tabernacle and dwelling in the temple. You're starting to see how this is, there's some hope and excitement here. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church at Colossae, and he refers to the hope of the glory of God. Remember, I said the glory left the temple, never returned, and the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the people of the chosen ones, were waiting for the glory to return. Paul comes along and says, I'm going to tell you something that has been hidden and is now revealed. A mystery, when you read the word mystery in the Bible, refers to a truth that's always been there, but it was hidden for a while, and God pulls it back and reveals it so people can know a truth that's always been there. And here it is. Paul writes like this to the church at Colossae. I've become a servant of the church by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ, Jesus, Messiah, in you is the hope of glory. And you, by the way, is you all. It's plural. Christ in you is the hope of glory, the glory that's been been waited for by these people for generations that showed up in Jesus is now spread out amongst you, the gathered people of God, the body of Christ. He, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus another description that, that spells it all a little more fully. He's writing in what I'm going to read to you right now to a church of people who are mostly non-Jewish people because now the good news has spread from not only to the Jewish people but to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And he says, consequently, you Gentiles are no longer foreigners and aliens. You were foreigners to the people of God, but now you're no longer foreigners, but you're fellow citizens with God's people. God has done something unique. He's taken the Jews and the Gentiles who were formerly enemies and made them one, one people, the people of God by Jesus and his cross. Members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as a cornerstone. Did you catch that he just moved into language of building? You are a building. 
In him, the whole building, in Jesus, the whole building of Jewish people and Gentile people, every person, no matter their ethnic origin, no matter their nationality, no matter their race, no matter their um, gender, no matter their, their social status, that have put their faith in Jesus, have been built together as a temple. In him, the whole building joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You, too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Now, don't, don't just read those words and go, yeah, that's interesting. This is a reality that's profound. The God of creation has chosen to build a temple, a place where people meet with God. But he's chosen now to build it out of living stones. And you and I are the living stones formed together to make a temple where we together are a place that the Holy Spirit wants to dwell with his glory, his Shekinah, in the way that he did in the temple of old. Am I making sense? I mean, it's, re- it's pretty powerful. And there are moments, at least moments, and I hope for more of them, when the body of Christ is come together like a temple and we are worshiping God and God's spirit dwells amongst us and he's so present that we feel him. He's so present that we see his works He's so present that people coming in who don't know him experience that something is different in the atmosphere. They're like, God is real. God is alive. And when we come together, we experience him by his spirit through each other in his word. Isn't it? When you know this, it builds faith for what you pray for and what you expect and what you then experience. Now, when I put it... They put a title up earlier, and I sent it to you in, in my email this week. The title for this talk is Real God Encountering His Glory and Goodness Together. So there's a little more to talk about. There's the goodness of God. And I said, Encountering His Glory and Goodness Together. And I realized this morning that that would be an ambiguous modifier for you English students. What's together? Is it that the glory and goodness are together, or is it that we together, His people, our experience of his glory is goodness? Or is it that just because we're together, we experience together his glory and goodness? Do you see the problem there? Turn, you don't. Well, I'll let you ponder that later. Turns out <laughs> it's all true. The together modifies the whole enchilada. It modifies the whole phrase. When we are together, we experience the real God. But we also together experience two things that go hand in hand glory, and goodness. Um, Yeah, good. We have enough time here. So, a key text in the Bible about the glory of God is another story of Moses. Moses has run into some trouble because while he's up on the mountain getting God's plan for the tabernacle and getting the covenant description that God's making with the people of Israel. The people of Israel are throwing down a really raunchy party on the ground. And they've already, in a few days, gone back into pagan worship. They take off their jewelry, they melt it down, and they make, Aaron actually makes, Moses' older brother, makes a golden calf. And they begin having a pagan worship festival around these idols. While Moses is interacting with God, it's a crazy story. 
Moses comes down. He gets so angry. He takes the tabernacle, the um, covenant that's written on stones, and throws it, and it just busts apart. He's so mad at the people, and he, you know, he, he wants to smash them. And, and God says, "You know what? Just step back. I'm going to kill them all and start with you." And Moses goes, "No, no, God, don't do that. Have mercy on these people. What are the nations going to think if you bring them out of Israel, Egypt, and then you kill them all?" And God says, "Well, well prayed, Moses. I will relent." And Moses goes back up on the mountain to meet with God. Well, while he's meeting with God, he has an interesting encounter. And we're going to read it together, and it's going to bring together glory and goodness. You you still with me? Okay, good. This is Exodus 33. The end of Exodus 33 going into Exodus 34. Moses said, now show me your glory. And God responds, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. Moses asked for glory. God promises goodness. And at this moment in the Bible story, we see that connected and inextricably connected are God's goodness and his glory. I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim my name. Now, in in, uh, this culture, a person's name has a lot to do with their character. His name is... Yahweh, the one who was and who is and is to come. I will proclaim my name. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Then God says, but you can't see my face because if you see my face, it'll kill you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you on a rock and I'll kind of walk by and you'll have my presence go by and and you won't die. So the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on the rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand. You'll see not my front, I guess, my back, whatever that means, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I'll write on them the words that were on the first tablets. Did you know that God was the one that did the writing on the tablets? Isn't that amazing? Be ready in the morning, then come on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one should come with you. So Moses, verse 4 of chapter um, 34, he chiseled out the two stones. He goes up early in the morning. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, this is the goodness of God. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, forgiving rebellion, forgiving sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Even the children and the children onto the fourth generation will be affected by the sins of their fathers. We, we sing a song... It says, all my life you have been faithful. The goodness of God song, right? You've been so, so good. With every breath that I'm able, I will sing of the goodness of God. How, how would you define goodness, get you interacting with me? Someone tell me, what, what would, you, would you have some words for what goodness might mean? Patient, and what did you say? Compassionate, we just read that. Goodness would be compassion in action, caring. Think of ways that God has encountered you. Yeah, Kenya. Say that again. Be still. Be still. 
So that this peace, this lack of striving. Friendship is really a great word. So a friendliness, a God who is just friendly. And Jesus said, I'm calling you friends, my friends. Loving and caring. Well, you can imagine I did some research and read and looked and read and looked and read Bible dictionaries. And I found one particular um, scholarly kind of guy named Kevin DeYoung. He has maybe some big words, but I think it's helpful for me, and I'm going to read it to you. Divine goodness is the overflowing bounty of God by which he, Jesus, God, who receives nothing and lacks nothing, communicates his blessing to his creation and to his creatures. God's goodness is the opposite of harshness and cruelty. To experience divine goodness is to enjoy the sweetness. And like, like you said, um, friendliness, benevolence, and generosity of God. Generosity is a good word. Uh, think of this, by the way. His goodness permeates every one of his attributes. If God were all-powerful but not good, we'd be in big trouble. You know, an all-powerful being that's not good, he's always good. Everything about him is good. He's never not good. Everything he does for us is good. And this, this is really helpful. If I believe that God is good and he tells me not to do something, he prohibits a behavior, and I already believe that he's good, then I think, oh, the reason I'm not supposed to do this thing that I think would be good for me is because he knows it would be bad for me because he's always good. So he said, don't do that. In fact, how did he get, how did Satan get Adam and Eve to sin? By telling them God wasn't good. In fact, he said, you could be like God if you'd eat this fruit that he said not to eat, and you'd know goodness. Right? the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. If God can get you to believe that he's not good, I mean, if Satan can get you to believe that God's not good, you're not far from being tempted to disobey God. Because you think, yeah, God's not good because he's holding out on me. But God's goodness permeates everything he does. He's always good, always kind. He's the definition of goodness. And we could talk a bit about this, but that doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us. What it means is that when bad things happen, God will redeem them so much that by the end of it, we'll say, I would never trade that bad experience for the good that came out of it. So, you know this verse from Romans, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God's glory, so, if, now we've covered kind of a lot of territory here. We've talked about the Shekinah, the manifest presence of the glory of God. And we've just said that the glory of God and the goodness of God always go together. And we've said that there's a particular experience when people of God come together as the temple of God, where God's Shekinah dwells, where we can anticipate coming together, we will have an encounter with the real living God who is alive, where we experience and encounter his glory, which is just so wonderful when we experience the glory of God, just alone, without any effect. Remember, David, King David wrote, there's only one thing I desire, that I may dwell 
in your courts and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I just want to see how glorious and how wonderful and contemplate and experience and enjoy the beauty and the presence of this incredible, amazing, indescribable God. How I love to worship you when I draw near to you and start to see you. It's everything I could ever want. It's all I asked for. One thing I've desired, that I may be in your presence. And then we combine that with the reality that in the presence of God, there's often connected the goodness of God, which often is God at work. And you have experienced this, I hope, and hopefully your faith has been built up that you can anticipate that you yourself are a temple of God where his spirit dwells, where his Shekinah dwells, his glory dwells, starting to speak of the kingdom or the presence of God. And you then are a recipient and a transmitter of the goodness of God. And the next thing you know, you run into someone who is far from the goodness of God, who needs the goodness of God. And in your very presence, you being filled with the spirit are one who can be restoring broken lives by the glory and goodness of God. Did that kind of, you follow that? If you believe that, it changes how you live. Changes everything. One day, Jesus was somewhere, Luke 5 describes this, he was in a house, and Luke says, the presence of, For the Lord was present to heal the sick. The presence of God was unusually manifested. That would be an experience, I think, of the Shekinah. The glory and goodness of God came together in a moment, and he was present with power for Jesus to heal the sick. And that's the story where Jesus uh, told the man that was paralyzed, I see all your faith, your sins are forgiven. Then he said, oh, you Pharisees, wonder if I can do that. Well, how about this? stand to your feet and be healed, and the guy stands up, and he goes, which is easier to say, be healed or your sins forgiven? I guess I can do both because I'm God. (laughs) Remember that story? Just one more piece, and I'll, I'll end this description, one more verse of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians, Paul goes back, tells the story of Moses on the mountain. When he came down after this experience, his face was glowing, and it freaked the people out. So he put a veil over his face. Do you remember that story? He literally was glowing from the presence of God, the glory of God shining on him. So he put a veil over his face. And Paul says that we have a much better covenant that Moses brought to the people. We have the covenant of the spirit of life, the covenant that says this, if you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus will write his laws on your heart. They won't be on an external piece of stone. His desires will be written on your heart and your very insides will change so that your behavior matches your insides and you start looking like Jesus. That's the new covenant. He says, I'll put the righteousness of God on you. The old covenant said, your righteousness will be dependent on your ability to follow the rules of the law. The new covenant says, your righteousness is given to you by Jesus who's righteous. It's a really good covenant. So Paul says, we have this better experience and he says that we have something better than Moses with these words. The Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, unlike Moses who veiled his face, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord 
who is the Spirit. Did you catch that? When we gather together, not only do we reflect the glory of God, we behold Him and we become more like Him. This is why worship is so powerfully transformative. When we worship, according to Paul, we have the experience of beholding the glory of God as He manifests His presence in what we might call Shekinah. And we ourselves are transformed in the very act of worship into being more and more like Jesus. This powerful, beautiful truth. From that, we thought about the promise in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, Isaiah, that says, and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Understanding that that knowledge is the knowledge of relationship with Jesus. And we, we said, let's put that in a, a phrase to think about what we'd like our future to be, the future of the world. And it came out like this. A vision is a description of a preferred future. Our vision is for people everywhere to know and worship God in all his glory and goodness. So I wanted to bring that all around to us to see what we believe God has called us to be, called us to pray for, and called us to do. And we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But the reality that God is real, He's alive, and we can encounter Him when we come together. We encounter Him in His Word. We encounter Him by His Spirit, His presence, touching and speaking and moving amongst us. We encounter him even from each other, where we who have the Spirit of God in us encounter each other and speak words of truth and maybe speak encouraging prophetic words, or maybe we lay hands on each other and pray for each other and the presence of God and the goodness of God come together to bring healing and wholeness. This is all happening, and the result is that we are worshiping and knowing God and his goodness and his glory, and ultimately, when this happens, the world is redeemed. And I think that's all I got to say. So, let's look to him again. And um, Amy, if you want to come up with some worship leaders, we'll end this time together. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Lord, you taught us to pray, let the kingdom of God come and the will of God be done. So we pray right now. Let the kingdom of God come upon this gathering of people, your leadership, your ruling and reigning. Let your presence rest upon us. We'd be so bold to pray that what the rabbis called the Shekinah, let the Shekinah of glory, the glory of God, rest on us as we, your people, this day of Pentecost, Worship you. Listen, if you're, if you're in the hearing of my voice right now and you've never given your very life to Jesus, this would be a good time for you. This would be a really good time. Jesus said very simply that if we would look in faith to what he did on the cross if we would believe him, that he died in our place to eliminate our sins and all their effects, 
and to bring us into life in his kingdom. If we just look in faith at him and trust him, he would cause us to be born brand new. He'd cause his spirit to dwell in us, and he'd make us a temple for his presence. If you've never done that, in other words, if you've never put your faith directly to Jesus, today's your day. And I'd recommend you do it. And you can do it just by talking to him. I'd, I'd say something like this. And in fact, if you want to say this with me, you could. You don't need to, but something like this. Jesus, I believe you. I trust you. I believe you died on the cross for me. And I believe that you rose from the dead as the king of the universe, the Lord of lords, the son of the living God. I ask you to come into my life. Take control. You're now the boss. You're now my Lord. Give me new life in you. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message. This weekly podcast is available on our website, gracevcf.org, where you can learn more about Grace Vineyard and our vision for people everywhere to know and worship God.